This is Bruce Sheffer, and we just wanted to let you know that the TriTac Games podcast is going on its summer schedule, which means that the episodes are probably only going to be about a half hour long starting this episode. But we're going to make sure we give you at least a half hour each time. We just want to do that because we need to get special care to make sure that our demo presentations at the various conventions we're attending this summer are going to be of high quality and that we're really well prepared and also for the development of the Savage Worlds Fringeworthy Edition is coming out on a proper schedule. Thank you for being our supporters now and in the future. Welcome to the TriTag Games Podcast. <laughs> This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. This is Trav. And this is Dr. Nick. Welcome, Dr. Nick, to the TriTac Games Podcast, your podcast of promoting your product anywhere we can do it. Dr. Nick is the winner of the Iron GM Contest. You were the winner, right? Well, I was the regional iron contender for uh, TotalCon 2012. Yes, sir. Excellent. And so he's here to tell us about his product that he has uh, designed as a result of that competition and is available on DriveThruRPG. We think it's just an absolute shoe-in to work with Fringeworthy and a lot of the other products that we have. So we wanted to give him an opportunity to really let us know how great it could make our game and your game. So, Nick, tell us a little something about yourself first. Sure. Um, So I was one of those weird kids that my parents didn't know what to do with. On my seventh birthday, they went into the store and said, we need a toy for a smart kid. And they ended up getting me the uh, red box and the blue box of D&D and two boxes of little Ralpartha and Grenadier miniatures. And that night, I ran my very first game and killed all of my friends by having the pterodactyls at the Isle of Dread chew the bridge that they were crossing on and fall them down into the chasm uh, TPK. It was wonderful. Excellent. I've, I've gotten a little better at GMing since then. No, no, that was perfect. <laughs> since then, uh, I've gone in. I've, I've been in the uh, hobby for now uh, 33-odd years. I started writing adventures and have been a GM since day one. And uh, played with different systems and different worlds and done all sorts of stuff. And then finally, I decided that uh, it was time to start putting out some of the things that uh, I'd been working on for sale. I think uh, a kind of an interesting approach towards what we do. Savage Worlds is currently the system that I'm running my home campaign in. And I've been using aspects of the system, including the adventure deck and stuff, for uh, the last three, four years now. Um, But what we've done currently is uh, we've got a couple of PDFs for sale. You can only see one of them unless you're approved for adult content on DriveThruRPG. So uh, you got to be approved for adult content to see the second product. First one is a setting in 3000 B.C., so that's uh, ancient Mesopotamia, you know, full of myth and legend, Bronze Age kind of stuff. And that is the caravan module. And then we've also got a module uh, that is the rated R one, and that is called 
Deadly Seven, which is a modern horror game. And that one is a huge module, uh, close to 200 pages when all said and done, where you're kind of running around hunting down the seven deadly sins and finding out what's going on behind them and uh, uh, having to deal with all of the horrors associated with them. Wow, that's awesome because, you know, we were talking about the Mesopotamian uh, book for Fringeworthy, but not not that you can't use the horror one for Fringeworthy, but that's a definite shoe in February 13, one of the other books that we're putting out that's coming out next for Savage Worlds. Oh, certainly. Uh, I'm a Bureau 13 <laughs> player from way back. Had Stalk in the Night Fantastic. Loved it. Yes, this is uh, definitely something that could work out well uh, into that type of campaign. It's totally designed for a group to be investigating, reporting, discovering the mysteries and horrors thereof. It was interesting to go through that process, and uh, I think that uh, it would play very well into that type of Bureau 13 type setting. Sweet. Well, that, that's a double bonus, because I had no idea that you had that one out, too. That's awesome. It just got released a few hours ago. I haven't even sent the email out saying that it's out. Oh, sweet. The sales are starting to roll in already. I'm getting my little updates from RPG right now. Great. Wow. Those of you who know this podcast very much know that we love Fringeworthy. We always like to talk about how things are really great for Fringeworthy. But we do love all our other products as well. But in this particular case, with your supplement Mesopotamia, one of the staples in Fringeworthy is exploring to alternate Earths. And many of those alternate Earths are in different time periods, much as if time, per se, got started a little sooner, a little later. So in one world you might go to, it could be the future relative to where we are on Earth, or it could be in the past. So it's very easy for someone to go from our modern world into the Mesopotamian era by just simply going to an alternate Earth that is, that is set in that particular time. So this would really be helpful, it sounds like. Oh, certainly. And what we do is in the Caravan product, you've got the adventure, which is a pretty typical trope. Bring the group together, have them go from place uh, A, which is the city of Ur, uh, over to Nineveh, and then come back again. The encounters that you have along the way are definitely something that uh, could be playing in for fringeworthy setting in the sense that one of the primary obstacles is uh, trying to discover what's going on with this trade village along the way and uh, putting in a portal or gate to get back or to find the next location would be uh, totally perfect to try to get into the ziggurat and uh, figure that out there in addition to that we do background uh, and have the support material inside of the module for Mesopotamia and that ancient earth setting, which is high fantasy oriented. So uh, if you read the myths and legends of ancient Babylon and you know where the Zodiac comes from, a lot of the uh, mythology that uh, we're familiar with in modern day is rooted in this time period. So we reference a lot of that and that's definitely part of it. And that section is a, is at the tail end of the module and, and consists of about, uh, you know, 15 pages or so of, I'm sorry, about 10 pages or so of information uh, on there. And from what I've seen, it looks great. I can see using it with an IDET team and exploring Mesopotamia when the crap hits the fan. I like how you set it up for three different settings. OGL, True 20 and Savage Worlds. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, that's definitely something that I think that we're doing that I haven't seen. Uh, my design partner, Drew, is uh, pretty handy with the uh, Adobe and PDF modules, and it's all layered. So as you're going through, uh, you just kind of select the layer of the rule set that you want to use, and all of the content uh, immediately switches over to that game system. Oh, nice. Yes, uh, and on the Savage Worlds layer, since uh, the stats and the system is so fast and furious, uh, there's more art. Uh, so that's a good thing. <laughs> that's cool, you know, because um, right now, uh, Friendsworthy is in is uh, in D20, and that's modern D20. So that that's great. That that plays for both systems. That's fantastic. We wanted to make a system because, I mean, both Drew and I have uh, numerous game systems on our shelves, as any hardcore gamer does, and some of them we've never even played. But uh, we've got all those rule sets, and rather than try to come up with a new system or, or cater to just one, we're like, you know, we have this knowledge. We know these systems. Let's go ahead and just uh, uh, put something together where we can do this and where we feel where we feel comfortable with. And those were the three systems that we felt most comfortable with doing. Cool. So now you, you said that it's um, a fantasy setting. So you're talking uh, dwarves and, and elves and, and hobbits as well. So is that, is that correct? Yeah, but in ancient Mesopotamia, not too many elves. Uh, the dwarves were up in the mountains and uh, traveling through. One of the primary bad guys in the caravan module are uh, gnolls, you know, desert tribe gnolls. Okay. So you're running up against them. And yes, uh, the game is an opener to a setting, uh, you know, the ancient Mesopotamia setting. And that originally has been built as a, a level 1 through 20, you know, OGL uh, campaign. Oh, so like a campaign arc, kind of. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. And it takes place, uh, you know, in this great historical setting. Um, what ends up occurring there is that you have the whole modules go through. The beginning part is uh, the desert tribes, and then it kind of moves into other areas. We'll see how well the first product does and if we're going to release the remainder of the, the stories. Uh, but they're definitely uh, a lot more room to explore and grow. And you get into all of the different creatures, areas, uh, you know, all the orcs that live up in the, the Zagros Mountains. And uh, dragons are all over the place in ancient Mesopotamia. So there's a, lot, there's a whole Dragon Slayer series in there. And then ultimately, uh, you circle back around and re-encounter the gnolls that you experienced in this first adventure who have grown into this huge tribe threatening the uh, uh, entire civilization civilization of Egypt and you have to go deal with that. So yeah, it's a it's a pretty cool arc. Okay, so uh, my main engine's D20 and I like having FX in my campaign. So you are bringing in gnolls and dwarves and magic is involved in this too? Oh, certainly, high fantasy. Yes. Okay. Oh, wow. All right. I mean, when we looked back, originally when this whole project started, I was trying to come up with another game world to run in, you know, and we're playing around with it. And one of my friends and I were sitting down we're like, oh, well, let's do like a Persian culture over here and let's do a kind of a British culture over there. And let's do uh, this kind of piratey uh, group over here. And we started listing how we were basing all these on real historical time periods and real places in our own world for you know shorthand and familiarity. And all of a sudden, we just sat there and looked at each other and were like, why don't we just do ancient Earth? And it's going to be richer, uh, more vivid, and deeper, and easy to connect to than anything we're coming up with on our own. Mm -hmm. And it just clicked for us. 
that's really where I put a lot of my high fantasy gaming uh, energy, creative energy in for the last uh, probably uh, 10 years now. So yeah, we've got, I've got stuff there. We've got, you know, British Isles. Uh, we've got uh, a couple of ancient China. Um, there's even a, a Native American adventure, which is uh, kind of fun. So yeah, we've got a bunch of different ones that are kind of sitting around there that have all been play tested and vetted and uh, we'll see which way we end up going. Okay. I loved how it's set up for gaming in Mesopotamia. It's not a setting I've seen many games set in. It's a mythos that's not familiar to many people. Do you plan to include any Gilgamesh in it? <laughs> any what? Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh. Oh, Gilgamesh. Oh, thank you. Yes. Um <laughs> Actually, I would disagree that it's not a setting that's familiar to people. Whether they realize it or not, most people are actually very familiar with it. With Gilgamesh and Enkidu and Marduk and Tiamat and, the again, all of the gods from the Babylonian Sumerian mythos appear in the horoscope zodiacs that you that a lot of people read every day. So there's actually a lot that's there that's very familiar to people. That's something that if you can hit on those points, yes, you definitely will find the familiarity. Gilgamesh and Enkidu particularly don't appear. They're just kind of background, although there is a chance that the characters might be able to interact with this huge stone giant called Marduk at one point in time. Not in this caravan adventure. That's a little bit further down the road. The whole battle between uh, King Sargon and King Lugal Lagizi and the battle of which culture is going to kind of be predominant is uh, the background for a couple of the primary story arcs in that campaign for sure yeah, but, but you know what you know what i like about this is that you know it's something that the players can go research on their own should they want to you know if you tell them hey look guys uh, just a little heads up we're going to be adventuring in uh, the mesopotamian uh, time period you might want to just do a little reading on it do some light reading on it and of course you know you have the stuff you know from your supplement that they could read on but they can read on you know going to wikipedia wikipedia is really easy it's real accessible and you're right. There, there's a lot of stuff there that, you know, if you're reading it, you'd be like, oh, I knew that. Or it's like, yeah, I've heard, you know, I've heard a lot about this and it would clear a lot of things up. But what I really like about it is if you're not 100% clear on it, it'll push you to become clear on it, which is promoting uh, – it's doing what RPGs do really well is causing people, forcing people to learn but have a good time doing it. Oh, oh, certainly, certainly. Um, the cute thing in the playtest and first run of this campaign back a few years ago, one of my players was, uh, this was his very first game. He was like 13 when he started playing, and I think he was 15 or 16 when he finished, when we finished with the campaign. He came back one week and was like, we had to learn about this stuff in school, and I knew all about it because of this game. And like he was just scratching his head, like, how did I learn something for school while I was playing a game killing orcs? <laughs> and like, yeah, that's 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 it. And yeah, I had another player who uh, uh, I always give people XP extra experience points if they do homework out of the game. So one of the players ended up researching the games and that sort of stuff that uh, the different people would play. And she found this uh, game called King's Table, which is what the nobles and stuff used to play. It's the precursor to backgammon. And it's a very simple game. You roll anywhere from zero to four. 
you can move your pieces uh, zero to four places. And it's uh, real simple. There's like eight squares you got to move past, and you got like half a dozen pieces, and you just got to move them around. Uh, it's not very complex at all, but the nobles would play this when they were just chatting and interacting. It was their, you know, little social thing while they're hanging out together. She made a board for it. So, you know, I've got a little King's Table board, uh, you know, as a result of it. She got much extra experience for doing that. Um, But yeah, there's actually quite a bit you can go and learn and explore. I've actually pulled that King's Table game out uh, just as kind of a waiting for a game to start. And there's a couple people sitting at the table like, yeah, okay, let's play a game of King's Table. Here we go. Oh, that's really awesome. I mean, that... That is like the best thing about role-playing games that I that I think uh, is out there is it, is it extends to that it it it, uh, it pushes the envelope on your learning experience so you you learn all this stuff and you have fun learning it I think that's one of the things that parents who didn't realize this when we were growing up I mean like my parents didn't realize that you know this this role-playing thing would lead to be you know would lead to me being smarter. It just does, you know, because it, it's just it's a natural progression. You know, you play these games, you want to learn more about history. Uh, it becomes more interesting. It gives you something to apply it to. So that that's really cool. That's why I really like this. When I when I saw this, I knew this was a definite shoe in for our show. Yeah, and I agree. You know, everything that you said is is dead on. And uh, you know, I learned vocabulary, math, and and all of uh, extra little skills including, you know, a little history here and there from role-playing, and I do not regret it one one bit at all. You know, it's funny. At Balticon, I'm, I'm actually on a panel about putting physics into your fantasy. and It's basically the panel is how to make your magic more realistic in a, in a role-playing setting. So that that's going to be kind of neat. And me being the science nerd that I am, it's a real shoo-in for me. I was really glad they put me on that panel. As for other ancient settings, any South American settings, the mythos of ancient Peruvians would be very daunting to many folks. Mesoamerican mythos can be very daunting for modern folks. Mayan rituals use a lot of blood that you give freely from yourself. Religion and belief in the gods figures highly among most of the ancient people. Yeah, they also use chocolate. Um, the uh, which would always be a good in-game prop, uh, chocolate. Um, but uh, no, unfortunately, we have no uh, South American mythos-oriented historical adventures at this point in time. So where are we going, Bruce? Since you mentioned Wikipedia, I went and looked at Wikipedia, and I noticed a couple of things. The font of all knowledge. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, John. I noticed a number of interesting things that were happening about 3,000 years B.C. First of all, according to the zombie survival guide, there's a zombie outbreak in Egypt. That's possible because they had some undead stuff going on for certainly. I can safely say that uh, in the campaign that does play into things. It's in Egypt and it has to do with the Knolls. And uh, yes, that is included in the larger story arc. Okay. If you happen to uh, have watched a television show that drew strongly from the Fringeworthy game called Stargate, that's when they kicked the ghouls off Earth the first time. Nick, you may not know this, but Fringeworthy's been around since, uh, what was that, Bruce's 70, late? 82. 82, 83. 
and when Stargate came out, it was a it was kind of a a, a, a kick in the in the genitals there because it was so similar to Fringeworthy. And Fringeworthy had been around for years before they came out. So decades. Was it when did that come out? Was that the late nineties or something like that? At least the middle nineties. It'd been out at least a decade. Yeah. That was kind of a, a stick in the eye. <laughs> like I'm sorry, I, I I'll give you a kiss and make it better if I see you. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, we we, we kind of tread lightly around it. Uh, um, Rich is a little uh, yeah. sensitive to the, the whole Stargate reference. So something totally unrelated. There's apparently a, a book series by Sam Barron called the Escar Saga, which also took place around 3157 BC. If you want to expand this excellent Mesopotamia adventure, you might want to bring in some stuff from that too right on uh that's okay. definitely an option right uh, yeah when we uh the 3000 bc thing is uh very rough whenever we make something and this is a conversation i had with my best friend uh, just uh, earlier this week we were talking about gaming and and historical settings and that sort of stuff and while i like the year 1783 uh because of the highlander reference uh if i'm going to set a game in the late uh in the 18th century i'm going to set it in the 18th century and i'm not going to put a specific year on it and same thing with uh doing the historical earth stuff you know we're doing roughly 3000 bc is it you know is it 2500 bc yeah you can go up there it's somewhere in between there you know it's it's a mutable thing right. so you kind of play with any of that uh range of time and it'll it'll fit in there without much difficulty sure, sure. Um, so so it's the goal is to go for that feel and to get that essence as opposed to have it you know be so rigid and firm at a at a specific year or time frame it's not a year it's an era correct right. yes yeah. yes so, but over here in Egypt, they're just starting to have pharaohs. Djet, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, is D-J-E-T. They just had their fourth pharaoh right about 3,000. They just invented money. A uh, shekel was introduced uh, in Mesopotamia about the same time. This is basically the birth of civilization right now, right? It is, Yes. The biggest thing that you've got is that, you know, from a setting perspective, a lot of this stuff is coming into being. So uh, from a campaign and from a player's perspective, uh, when they're in there, they're actually taking part in this. They're seeing, you know, Babylon being founded and built. They are uh, being able to explore this area that has never, you know, really been documented or explored before. It is truly the the first time a lot of this stuff is happening, just as you said. So from that standpoint, it gives a very interesting feel for the the players that they get to take part in something at the creation level uh, and at the dawn of it. Uh, you know, the birth of these empires and and people cruising around in their war chariots. Uh, you know, organized warfare. Archery is just like archers as an organized unit are just starting out in terms of battles. Uh, you know, like people, this is a, a very, very powerful time frame. Uh, you know, nobody's riding horses because nobody's thought of that yet uh, or has the skill or technology to really be able to do it right. Are horses even big enough to do that? Uh, no, they usually use oxen and donkeys uh, or uh, camels uh, to pull stuff. Uh, 
uh, oxen or just been domesticated. So they use those to kind of pull plows, which means agriculture's around now, which means people are actually exploring things like art and culture. Uh, writing is just being invented. So wizards are just starting out and they're very, you know, kind of esoteric and still, um, you know, noble and rich uh, oriented only. Uh, sorcerers and bards and stuff are around. And those are things that are into the rule system. So if you're going to play a peasant or a, a former slave, you're not going to be a wizard because you wouldn't have learned to write or had access to the libraries to be able to study this stuff. But you'd be a sorcerer or uh, a bard or, or something like that without any problem. Uh, you know, clerics, rangers, divine magic, you know, still happens. So all of that stuff really gives an interesting and good flavor for uh, being able to sink in and build some uh, cool character. Now, if you're coming in from the outside, so like a fringe-worthy group, you know, coming into this uh, setting, uh, they're going to be able to see where these uh, historical entities and concepts of, uh, you know, Tiamat and Marduk and, and uh, ancient Babylon all come from and, and the impacts that they have on you know, the modern day world and perhaps even have some guidance or affecting them. In the campaign that I ran with the little 13-year-old who was like, wow, I learned something. In that same group, uh, one of the players, his character was just called the gardener. And that's just, that's what everybody knew him as. And he was a, a rogue druid, a really interesting character class, uh, you know, split. He was just the gardener. He was pretty effective at what he did, uh, but uh, he never played himself off as, uh, you know, either particularly roguish or druidish. But when they eventually went and go and meet with uh, King Sargon and, and see Babylon being built, uh, he had some very interesting ideas for what they could do with the decorations. And so, you know, they were able to influence and, uh, you know, come up with these whole hanging garden ideas and like, oh, okay, yeah, that's a good idea. That would definitely set me apart from the rest of the uh, kings and uh, rulers in, in this area. Yeah, I like it. You can see it now. Somebody comes up and goes, yeah, yeah, hang them. And they're like, ah, no, that wouldn't last. No, 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 hear me out. <laughs> exactly. So it was. And that was a, a role-playing interaction that they had to kind of do that. And that's that's a fun way that, you know, the players can definitely get in and affect and, and do kind of stuff to uh, – influence and and build on the history and the role of both the characters and the real world. Stonehenge is supposed to start around 3000 BC, so you can have fun with ancient Brits hauling massive blocks of stone around using magic or undead slaves. Well, they were actually human slaves because the isles were where the Fae and the Fomori were fighting, right? So you've got all these uh, gnomes and sprites and elves uh, battling against these goblins and giants and you know Fomori creatures for over the British Isles. Humans at that point in time in that region were little more than uh, kind of uh, grunt labor slaves. They were like little monkey pets to these other old, more ancient races, or at least that's the take that we're on it. So so yeah, there are no humans in the ancient historical British Isles. You've got to be uh, shorties or uh, uh, fairies, elves, and they're fighting off against all the uh, you know big, huge giants and nasty ogres and and uh, goblins and for control over the Isles at this point. But yeah, so the Picts are you know they're all like little halflings running around, and yeah, the human slaves are uh, helping them haul the stones about, and uh, eventually uh, the you know, the Isles get uh, the humans kind of get built up. 
yeah, that's that's definitely that British campaign. Uh, it's very interesting, uh, you know, set roughly in that same time frame. Uh, and yes, Stonehenge does come into play with that one as well. You, how can you not do that? That's it's perfect, you know. Well, you know, Nick, uh, talking to you, we really we sh- we should talk at some point. I, I, you're going to Gen Con, and I, I'm going to go to Gen Con. We should talk when we're there. We would love it if you could put one page in your PDF that basically, if you're playing Fringeworthy. The, the little information play page, just in case you're playing Fringeworthy and you want to use this world. Or the reverse. If you're playing any other game and you want to suddenly throw Fringeworthy into it. It'd be just, just a page that if there is a Fringeworthy portal in this world, this is the ramifications and this is where it would sit and this is what it would mean and this is what it would mean if people found it. One page that would just detail all the little things you'd have to know if you wanted to use it with Fringeworthy. I'm comfortable with that idea because we already have a section to say, all right, well, this caravan game, how would you run this game if you were doing it in a space setting or a Wild West setting? Or how would you do it if you were running it in a, you know, a steampunk setting? And we do that with most of the products to say, okay, uh, here's how you transfer it for an alternate setting or, or a situation. Uh, so putting in a fringe-worthy uh, uh, box is, is not too big of a deal. Uh, and I think that that's something we could probably uh, probably do and work on without a problem. Because I'm just like th- this stuff has fringe where they written all over it. Th- these all this stuff you're talking about is I mean it is perfect for fringe worthy. Wouldn't you say, Bruce? But wait until we have Savage Worlds fringe worthy out before you do that. You can <laughs> still use fringe worthy D20 on a separate layer right now. Right. That is oh, correct. That's correct. Well, I just say I just say generic, just just fringeworthy generically. In other words, like you don't have to put stats or anything in there, so it doesn't matter what system it is. You just say if you're going to use a portal, this is where it is, and you know if people find a portal, this is what this means. I always enjoy bringing characters through and teams through into this kind of a setting. And one of the things that my players always ask me about is they always want to know what can we do that's never been done before. And and what I'm talking about is scams, and yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, is this early enough that if you get caught and thrown into jail and you say, "Oh, my stomach, my stomach," is it finally early enough that the guard's going to fall for it? You know, I I think that that depends on how well the character role plays and and makes their bluff check. But I, I know that, like, the shell game is probably already, you know, that's that's probably old news at this point. Yeah, and they actually did come up with the whole ridges on the outside of the coin because of people shaving the coins to make more coins. Uh, that happened pretty quickly in, in terms of uh, monetary development. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, everything's old. Uh, everything's pretty old uh, in terms of the world. Uh, I don't think there's been much new since uh, since the Greeks started uh, writing things down. So from that perspective, uh, my opinion, no, it's all been done before. Guard, my cellmate has the plague. <laughs> so funny. You know, if I heard that coming out of my cell, I'd be running. <laughs> I'd be running for but the priest. I, I think that the 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 fire and uh, burning oil might be coming next. What I'm thinking though is like, okay, here, here's a good example. So, so for a, a fringe worthy entry, what do the natives do when somebody shoots an assault rifle at them? And you know, John and Bruce and I would work together to come up with 
all the little things that would need to be answered on this one or two page thing. Uh, you know, how, uh, how do people respond to guns? How do people respond to video screen or something like that? Th- those kind of things. Exactly. Yeah. Because people, a lot of people are like, you know, the little man inside the box that you open up, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times it's going to be moderate adventurers. They show up. You know, and you can always specify, and it's fine because it's your world. You're you're the you're the creator, so you're the dictator of this world. You could say, uh, modern technology doesn't work because French really has that built in. So if you wanted to, if you wanted to make it that way, um, you could say, well, you know, I think on this world, I don't want, you know, I think it'd be best if modern technology didn't work. We generally tend tend to not do that because it's more fun to see. Uh, how the natives will respond to that sort of thing. And this is primarily a science fiction game. Right. But here's the the fun thing, though. They are always limited because when they go through the fringe path, um, none of their electronic stuff works. So they have to recharge it. So a lot of times they need to use, like, uh, a solar um, collector battery, you know, solar panels, like portable solar panels to recharge their stuff. Because batteries are drained when they go through the, the, the French portal. So they, ha- they always, when they get somewhere, they always have to recharge everything. But there's also the fact that, okay, great, you guys have assault rifles. Um, how many bullets did you bring? Because eventually you are going right. to run out of them and your gun is going to be a club. So it doesn't really give them too much of an edge because you can only carry so much stuff with you. Uh, and the way the French path and the, and the pathways have been designed, there's a lot of game balance in it. You can't, you can only carry so much stuff with you. It generally tends to keep the game from becoming unbalanced. You know, a guy will come through, he might have an automatic rifle. That's great. He has four or five clips with him. That's what he's got. And when he runs out of bullets, that gun's a club. The third wave of uh, gnolls that are con- trying to uh, storm you, and you know, you're like, well, I'm I'm yeah. running out of bullets now, and there's a lot more of them than there are of us. Right. Those are just the kind of things that, you know, we would have to think about in those terms is that, you know, okay, so the first wave would hear the bang and see people fall and they would run. But then maybe the second wave would get brave and come in and then, you know, just kind of figure out where they would be. Would would they keep trying? Those kind of things. Firearms would be a shock at first, but as they see them used, they become odd looking bows. Grenades are a different matter. It's the knowledge in their heads that's important. One fellow does a kirk and makes gunpowder and clay pot bombs. But again, it's in the fantasy setting when you've got high fantasy. You know how different is a grenade from a, a sorcerer who blasts a fireball out at oh, you? Oh, exactly. Um, and yes. how different is that? How different is that gun from somebody who is, uh, you know, doing magic missiles, uh, you know, from the walls, or has a, uh, you know, some enhanced ability with a magic bow? You know, so a lot of that stuff isn't necessarily quite so shocking, especially when you get to more experienced characters. But you know, your mooks and grunts are definitely going to be like whoa that's that's weird yeah how different is that uh video screen from somebody who can scry in a crystal ball uh, you know not too different so those types of things aren't necessarily uh you know so foreign when you've got that high fantasy element if you're doing a true you know hard history you know world that might be something that would have a much much greater effect but at that point in time you're probably not going to have gnolls giant spiders and and scorpions the size of a car trying to eat your camels you know right it's like they would say oh they've got some interesting weapons send in the giant scorpions Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like oh crap (laughs) you know (laughs) 
So that, now that's cool. And, and that, those are just the kind of things that you know you would you would we would detail and I would say, okay, firearms are presented, you know, blah blah blah, this and that, and this is how they would react, and then they would send in the giant scorpions. Right. If you got a tow missile, then you probably don't have to worry about one dragon. Otherwise, forget it. <laughs> You're running away yelling, I get back, I'm going to chew out my history professor. He lied to us. <laughs> yeah, uh, their uh, mated pairs are definitely a thing to contend with. Um, there's a, a series of dragon slayers. So, yeah, you gotta got to be careful with that um, for certain. Um, wow, fun. Yes, I think that that definitely would be a, an interesting way to play things out. Uh, totally. This is Bruce Sheffer saying... There are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons license. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, cause we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.